Welcome to the Australian Naval History podcast series. It is a production of the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales, Canberra, in partnership with the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society, the Submarine Institute of Australia, and the Sea Power Centre Australia. I'm Commander Alastair Cooper. Naval shipbuilding, indeed any shipbuilding, is a sophisticated endeavour which combines national financial, technological, and manufacturing capabilities. The capability takes years to develop and involves people just as much as machinery. Once created, it provides great benefits for defence and the economy more broadly. In Australia's history, the Cockatoo Island Dockyard was an important part of the nation's industrial capability and is a fascinating subject in its own right. This is the second of two podcasts about Australian naval shipbuilding and the Cockatoo Island Dockyard. It will look at the operation of Cockatoo Island during the Second World War and in the period up to its closure as a dockyard in the early 1990s. To continue the story, I'm again joined by Mr. John Jeremy, the last Chief Executive of Cockatoo Dockyard, who wrote the book Cockatoo Island, Sydney's Historic Dockyard, and two further detailed histories of the shipbuilding and repair activities at the dockyard. By Dr. David Stevens of the Naval Studies Group, well-known naval historian and author of numerous books about Australian naval history. And by Dr. Greg Gilbert, visiting fellow in the Naval Studies Group, who was once also a member of the Naval Overseeing Staff at Cockatoo Island. Gentlemen, welcome. David, I'm just wondering if you'd like to add to the um, impact <coughs> on the shipbuilding program of, of buying local versus overseas ships during the interwar period. Yeah, there was certainly a, I mean, one of the things we'd, tr during the war, we certainly intended to build our ships afterwards. And we'd even um, decided that we were going to build our own submarines at, at, during the First World War. And we sent um, constructors over to the United Kingdom to, to learn how to do it. Um, but as Greg has mentioned, getting a, um, a free flit destroyer flotilla and a fl free submarine fl um, flotilla from the Royal Navy at the end of the war really uh, made it difficult for any thought of continuing construction. And as, as John has mentioned, it wasn't really until the mid-20s when the government decided it was going to get these two large cruisers. And um, one of the things about Brisbane, um, and in fact Adelaide afterwards, uh, Brisbane had been twice as much uh, to build in Australia mm -hmm. as had Sydney and Melbourne when the first two cruisers, like cruisers. And this um, this, this premium that you'd have to pay for building in Australia was well known. It was a matter of what you would benefit you would be getting out of paying that extra money. And the, uh, in fact, the, only, the way they worked it out originally was because there was different arguments about um, the, the costs, i.e. The, the Naval Board and the Admiralty thought it would cost this much and the shipbuilders would say it would cost that much. And, and obviously they were trying to, to push the line that would get the, uh, the best result for how they saw it. And in fact, the government had to get Sir John Monash to do a study on, um, on how, what the cost premium was going to be. And he came up with a premium of 50% if you built the two cruisers in Australia. And that's where, as John mentioned, the, the, uh, the compromise that the Defence Minister came up with was that we'll build both cruisers in Australia and we'll... Um, in the UK. Uh, sorry, in the, in the United Kingdom. And use the, use the the money you save to build the the seaplane carrier. The interesting 
um, thing that came out of that, of course, is after they'd been built, was that the Admiralty initial estimate of the cost of building the two cruisers was pretty much accurate, whilst the estimate for building the um, seaplane carrier was quite a bit out, and they ended up costing about another half a million pounds more than it was planned to, mostly due to design changes and, and wage increases, etc. So you can see the problem for the government of trying to, to build in Australia if they're not going to get a benefit out of it and if it's going to cost a lot more. Um, and as, as John mentioned, um, we, those first cruisers we, we bought, the, um, you know, the Sydney, what became Sydney, Perth and, um, and Hobart, were all got, they were actually Royal Naval cruisers that we adopted. Um, and we really had to start our ship's buildings um, on a small scale in the 30s with, as John has mentioned, the, the sloops, um, the first two and then other two close to the war. And finally, though, that, that um, the production of the two modern tribal class destroyers in 1939 really was, I would say, the, the beginning of the, of the dockyard getting into the swing again, um, which was obviously vital as we move on to what was going to happen in the Second World War. Greg, um, John's mentioned the dockyard was privatised um, in, in the 1930s. How did the Navy oversee um, the work done there to, to be able to, I guess, keep an eye on, on what David's mentioned as such an important yeah. task? It's, it's important to know that the Navy was involved at Cocteau Island from uh, the Commonwealth side from its uh, taking over from the start. But it was managed separately, even though it was a Commonwealth uh, entity. When it was privatised, they, they continued to have a commander who was attached, as it were, and the role of that person became much more important, when I say the individual, uh, took on much more responsibility, and it turned into, gradually, uh, as the shipbuilding grew, turned in by 1939 into uh, overseeing staff. Now, the naval overseeing staff were the Navy representatives on the island who coordinated between Navy office, or the head office, uh, and the actual company at the dockyard. Now, to do that, the P&O staff, as they were called, principal naval overseer staff, was run by a, an engineering commander as one of the, the most important positions in Sydney as a development type position, that person then went on and typically became the general overseer of Southeast Australia area, or GOSI, um, which was the captain engineer position. And they all became quite uh, famous, if you like, within Navy as the solid engineering capacity uh, in, of practitioners in the Navy. This is not on ship, but in shipyards and controlling contracts. GID Hutchinson, mm -hmm. or Hutch, Hutch? Hutchison, uh, yes. Yeah, Hutchison? Hutch. Hutch, as, we, as he's called, was uh, set up the Principal Naval Overseers Organisation formally mm -hmm. in 1939, which included the three principal engineers in uh, hull, mechanical and electrical. So they had enough advice in the dockyard. These guys also provided advice to all the shipbuilding and shipbuilders 
uh, across Australia during the Second World War, but there was that link between Navy and the contractor or, and the shipyard. This is not, today we do similar things and we have principal naval representatives, but not to the same level where we actually have experienced engineering staff who can resolve a lot of issues. And when I say resolve a lot of issues, with the, with the shipyard. So working together with the Cockatoo Island people, they understood the details and they could then convince the people in Navy office to that they've, things are correct. That in itself, that smooth communication was very important to get the day-to-day -day work happening. And the day to, the, when the company wanted to do things and it was just needed the naval overseers to go back to Navy office and say, we agree with the company and make it happen, right? If that didn't happen, and a lot of things actually happened within the dockyard anyway, so they had certain supervisory capacities. I believe that synergy, and this is exactly the way it happened in the UK, so it's not, you know, Australia invented a system, uh, but that synergy worked very well and meant that everything on a day-to-day -day basis could continue. And Navy Office, or the Naval Strategic Command, really didn't have to get involved in basic engineering decisions or basic shipbuilding decisions. Okay. John Jeremy, World War II was a particularly important time for the, for the dockyard. Um, can you just talk about its achievements and, and, and why it was so important to the, to the war effort? <coughs> well, um, there was the shipbuilding, of course, and another program which began just in late 1939, which was extremely important from, for the redevelopment of the Australian shipbuilding industry, was the construction of vessels initially called local defence vessels, but later reclassified Australian minesweepers of the Bathurst class. Sixty were ultimately built in Australia. Uh, they were quite small ships intended initially as escorts for ships around the coast of Australia. Um, they were designed in Australia in 1939 and construction begun uh, right at the outbreak of war. Um, Cockatoo Dockyard built the lead ship, uh, Bathurst, uh, and assisted the other shipbuilders in Australia by provision uh, of drawings, uh, built the boilers for the ships, um, uh, and also uh, sent loft templates uh, and some people to other shipyards around Australia to help re-establish that shipbuilding industry. That was another important shipbuilding activity. Um, during World War II also, uh, another merchant shipbuilding program was initiated. The Australian Shipbuilding Board uh, was formed uh, in 1941, uh, and they established a program to build a, a series of classes of merchant ships in Australia, um, and Cockatoo Dockyard helped the board design those ships and provide the basic design for them. But, uh, and, and the expansion of Cockatoo Dockyard during World War II, which was quite considerable, it was the second big period of expansion, was actually justified uh, by that merchant shipbuilding program rather than the naval one to enable the dockyard to build essentially the machinery for these ships, the boilers and the propulsion machinery for these ships which were being built elsewhere. But that really wasn't the major role of Cockatoo Dockyard during World War II. Cockatoo Dockyard, in, after the, the war came to the Pacific, uh, was for a time the main ship repair base in the southwest Pacific and was heavily involved in the uh, repair and maintenance of Allied ships uh, during World War II. Uh, and that really, I would say, was its principal role. The shipbuilding certainly considered, uh, continued rather, with the three tribal class destroyers, eight of the minesweepers, um, and two frigates. 
uh, and two merchant ships. But the enormous workload uh, was the repairs and maintenance and the conversion of the great liners into troop ships, uh, Queen Mary, Queen Elizabeth, Mauritania, Aquitania, and ships like that. Um, the workforce of the dockyard increased to over 3,000 during World War II, um, and uh, uh, it was very active throughout that period, um, uh, contributing, as I've said, to uh, from merchant ship design to warship repair uh, to naval shipbuilding. David, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the ship repair uh, aspects uh, in a bit more detail and, and the impact that Cockatoo Island had there. Yeah, well, you've got to remember that after the fall of Singapore, uh, Cockatoo Dockyard is really the only uh, repair base in the Southwest Pacific. And when you're at war and you've got ships being damaged, you can't afford to send them across open ocean necessarily. Um, and so, as, as John said, the, um, it becomes a major role and there was certainly a, about 40 major repair jobs done on Australian and Allied ships uh, during the war. And some of those were quite um, amazing repair jobs, um, particularly for, I mean, there was, um, I think, 19 American ships were repaired, um, including cruisers like Chester and, and Chicago. But one of the, the most famous was USS New Orleans, which had been um, hit off the, uh, the Solomon Islands and lost 150 feet of her bow, including a turret. And she had to steam um, backwards from the Solomons to Sydney. Um, and as you can imagine, that's quite a bit of seaman feet of seamanship in the first place. And then once she's in, in, um, in dockyard hands, they provide a... Um, a, a, a a false bow, not a false bow, but a, a temporary, new bow, a shortened bow, temporary, temporary bow, mm -hmm. to allow her there to then go to San Francisco when she can get a, a full bow fitted and another A turret. So th this is the sort of importance of, of, a, of, a, of a repair facility like that that's near enough. Otherwise, the ship couldn't have made that trip to San Francisco by itself and you've mm -hmm. lost another ship, which is not what you want in the middle of the war. Um, and of course, if there was the, uh, the campaign by enemy submarines off the Australian coast, which did some major damage, there was an LST, for example, the 471 that was um, torpedoed in 1943, and, and she was repaired in Cockatoo Island. Mm -hmm. um, Australian ships, HMAS Hobart, was badly damaged um, in the New Hebrides by a Japanese submarine, and she got back to... Um, Cockatoo Island and her whole stern, because it was so twisted, um, had to be taken off and realigned and put back again. I mean, a major en engineering task we're talking about here. Um, and then, of course, later in the war, we have the, the Kamikaze campaign and HMAS Australia, which was very badly damaged, as you know, in the mm. Philippines. Um, she had to come back to Cockatoo to have repairs made to her superstructure and her funnels um, before she could then make the trip to the UK later on. Um, the UK itself, the Royal Navy, once the British Pacific Fleet had become had come out, relied on um, Cockatoo as its repair base, and um, certainly you know the, the light fleet or the, the fleet carriers that were operating um, and were damaged in the Kamikaze attacks had to come back to Cockatoo to be repaired before they could go on to other other jobs. So it becomes a, a strategic asset for the Allies. Um, without doubt, and, and a fairly major one at that. And if it hadn't been there, if we hadn't had that capability, there would have been a lot more Allied ships lost. Thank you. John, 
uh, when the war ended, the government approved a program of destroyer construction in part to keep shipbuilding skills active and so forth. I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how that program worked out. That was the program to build the daring class destroyers. Originally there were to be four, two at Cockatoo and two at Williamstown and Victoria, and then it was followed up by a program of Type 12 anti-submarine frigates. Um, the program was approved, of course, to build destroyers for the Australian Navy, modern destroyers, uh, but one of the reasons why it was approved was um, the government wished not to lose the capability which had been established during World War II in naval shipbuilding and to sustain it. Um, the uh, program, uh, to, to, to support the program, uh, money was spent on expansion of some facilities on Cockatoo Island to build these ships um, and uh, new machine and tools were, were acquired to help build the boilers and the turbines for the, for the ships. Uh, and the Australian content uh, of the Darings and the later Type 12s was, was extremely high. Uh, Greg's mentioned spare supply problems with overseas built ships. Uh, well, very much of the equipment, including a good proportion of the armament of these ships, was built in Australia. Now, was the program a success? Um, it depends on how you measure it. Uh, there were lots of delays. Uh, again, we were buying, taking over British designs, and, and when we took over, the, made the decision, the designs were not complete. And with the Daring-class destroyers at one stage, it was even suggested that it would be quicker if Australia took over the completion of the design work on the Darings here so that we could maintain the pace of our program. During World War II, um, there had been a change in the um, contractual arrangements with Cockatoo Dockyard and a wartime agreement had been entered into um, to, to really to ensure that uh, the contractual arrangements were simple uh, and that the company didn't make excess profits during the war. And this provided for the company to be paid uh, for the work at cost and to earn a management fee based on turnover and the Commonwealth and uh, the company shared commercial profits. Um, and that agreement continued in effect with modification almost to 1972. Uh, but the effect of this uh, on the uh, new construction program was of course that there was absolutely no incentive uh, for the Navy or the company uh, to improve productivity or do things in perhaps a more modern way. The concentration of effort was on building fine ships, uh, and fine ships were built. One of the aims that, when the program was set up was to sustain a naval shipbuilding capability in Australia. That was unquestionably achieved, and if you want to have a look at uh, some of the benefits that occurred from this, in the 1960s we designed and built our own patrol boats, uh, our own survey ship, uh, the destroyer tender HMAS Stalwart, but perhaps the finest example of the, the outcome from this program is the construction of the last two Type 12s, Torrens and Swan. Mm. They were ordered as exact repeats of the, pre the previous two, but within six months we had decided to redesign them um, and modernise them. And that work was done in Australia, in Navy office and in the two participating dockyards, Cockatoo and Williamstown, while the ships were being built. And they were completed in a period of six years longer than had been planned, um, and sadly, however, um, Torrance was the last combat ship completed in Australia for 22 years, and in that subsequent period we lost a lot of the benefits that we had achieved from two decades after the war of a continuous naval shipbuilding program. Uh, they're lessons which uh, we're beginning to relearn now and uh, uh, create now another naval shipbuilding program. Uh, and some of us can only say it's about time. 
I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit more in detail about the impact of um, in the intermittent nature of the shipbuilding from the 60s through to, say, I guess 1986 when HMAS yes. success was delivered. Um, it, it was very intermittent through the 1960s. Well, the 1960s, we built one merchant ship. We built Empress of Australia. We built Stalwart. We built, we we built Torrens. Um, and we, we built a slave dock for submarine refitting. Uh, we built a dredger for the Melbourne Harbour Trust. But it was very stop-go, stop-go, stop-go. From uh, the, the 1960s through till the end of the dockyard, the principal role of the dockyard was, in fact, the support of Australia's submarines. Mm -hmm. uh, very high-class work. Um, and uh, uh, we had training programs for our own apprentices, a very important part of the dockyard's activities in the last decades. Um, but submarines are not the kind... You don't have enough breadth of activity, really, to sustain the kind of capability that Cockatoo had, and we wanted to get back into shipbuilding. And we were fortunate to succeed in getting the order to build um, the fleet underway replenishment ship, AORO-1, to a French design, first time we'd ever worked with the French, um, based upon an existing ship, but modified very substantially, which became HMA's success. There were many challenges with that project from a technical point of view, but from the point of view of actually rebuilding a shipbuilding capability, they were substantial as well. Um, we, despite the fact in the early 1980s Australia was in a recession, we could not get the skilled shipbuilders we needed to expand our workforce at that time. We recruited 100 from the United Kingdom. Uh, the best form of creating our new workforce, though, was our own apprentice training program. And in the early 1980s, when we employed something like 2,650 people at the dockyard, we had 400 apprentices uh, with with dedicated training school set up across a whole range of trades. And that was a, uh, a very good way of sustaining um, the, the capability and developing it um, through those years. Sadly, uh, the second replenishment ship never eventuated and we were very soon into a shutdown phase. Um, and uh, so the men momentum was lost again. Uh, but it was quite a job to build up that momentum uh, during those early years on the construction of that ship. Okay. David, um, Cockatoo did become quite a leader in terms of the refit and repair of conventional submarines and, and together with Navy was, was crucial to the, the very successful um, upgrade program to the Oberon class submarines. Just wondering if you could talk, uh, t talk us through that in a bit of detail please. Yeah, the um, Cockatoo had obviously had this long history with submarines. Even our first two, AE-1 and AE-2, went to Cockatoo when they first got to uh, Australia in 1913. And as I mentioned, there was the plan to actually build submarines um, during the First World War. Obviously, that capability uh, didn't, didn't um, uh, eventuate, but, um, and we didn't really have a submarine force after that, other than minor, minor goes. But certainly after the Second World War, when the British um, put a submarine squadron in, in Sydney, they needed somewhere to go um, for some of their maintenance. And that was being done at, at um, Cockatoo uh, Island, although not the major refits. It wasn't until, I think the first one was in 1961, HMS 60, Tabard. 60, 60 Tabard came Tabard, in there, right. 60 or 61. Yeah. So this is the start really of the, if you're going to do a major refit, you're starting to get the, the skills up there. And by 1964, as, as John has mentioned, um, we really had the, the, we were planning to get our own submarine fleet. We knew we needed to have the facilities to give them the, the, the complete refit um, in Australia. 
and Cockatoo was selected as the, as the place to happen. So the plans are in place for the Oberons that things will be done. Now, we're talking about the submarine update program, the, the, mm, the uh, submarine weapons um, upgrade program, the SWAP. Yep. And that went from 1977 to 85. Yep. Uh, the first one was HMAS Oxley. And this was a major upgrade. This was not just the refit. This was a complete um, takeout, sensors, weapons, um, fire control, all to be changed and upgraded. And by the, the time that um, Oxley came out in 1980, she was probably the most effective conventional submarine in the world at that stage. Um, she'd been fitted with, um, as I said, new sensors. She could fire the American Mark 48 torpedo and, and eventually that they showed the capabilities to do the encapsulated harpoon eventually as, as part of the program, but although not immediately. So these were extremely um, effective submarines and they'd been done in country with a lot of the, obviously the design work done in country. And I thought it was very interesting to see that both the Canadians and the, uh, the Royal Navy um, in their Abrons ended up with the, the same design, some of the same design features. Same concept. On, uh, um, as, as us. So one of the, the major um, effects of this is that we built up the, the knowledge and the confidence to actually decide that we could build our own submarines in the future. And so hence we move into the Collins phase. So Cockatoo had a major role in that. Okay. And just while we're talking about submarines, John, you're wearing a, a very nice tie, we should mention, which has all six of the O-boats listed. Can you yes. just tell us a little bit about the tie? Ah, uh, well... What a coincidence that I should be wearing in today. Submarines under the Southern Cross. Yes, this was one of the dockyard ties uh, to commemorate our role in the support of the submarines. Um, we, 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 the facilities which were established on Cockatoo Island between 1968 and 1971 were some of the best non-nuclear submarine refit facilities in the world. Um, unfortunately, they weren't fully completed. Uh, one part of, essential part of the modernisation program was dropped for financial reasons, uh, which meant, of course, that the whole logic of the uh, modernisation wasn't quite perfect. However, um, we were very proud of the work that uh, went on on the, on the submarines, and, and, and it, it was the major role of the dockyard during that period. Very early on in this discussion, Greg mentioned some of the problems associated with um, the supply of parts uh, and technical decisions from another country. Uh, now, the parent navy for the Oberons was the Royal Navy, was Britain. Uh, and uh, right throughout uh, the life of the Oberons, the technical authority was the Ministry of Defence. Uh, throughout the Falklands War, any of those communications and supply lines effectively froze. Um, and as the Oberons went out of service in the UK, uh, we no longer had people in the Ministry of Defence who could answer our questions. Uh, and there was one example where we proposed a change or a, a repair in one of our submarines, uh, which Navy Office decided should go to the technical authority in Britain, the design authority, uh, who actually referred it back to an individual who happened to work for us, saying, do you think this is the right thing we should do? He said, yes. Uh, and we got the answer, yes, go ahead, and four months later. This is an example of why um, you really need an indigenous technical capability from the top down to support the ships and submarines of our Navy. Um, we supported the Oberons very well in Australia. 
um, and the relationship between uh, the dockyard, uh, a Navy office, and the fleet was very, very close. Uh, there would be times, for example, when uh, I would see a submarine coming around Long Nose Point and heading for the dockyard, uh, ring up uh, Mike Davidson, the principal naval representative, and say, there's a submarine heading for the island, why? And he said, I've no idea, John, I'll find out. And he'd ring back a little later and say, oh, she's got a problem with the starboard main engine. Can you organise some people to look at it overnight tonight? Yes, of course we can. Okay, no problem. Send it to this wharf. Um, that was what we were there for. Um, and the arrangement worked very well throughout that period. But in 1987, the Minister for Defence made a decision yes. not only to terminate the lease um, uh, on the island with the, the company that was running the dockyard, but also to move the last two um, yes. uh, submarine refits to, to Garden Island. What happened? Ah, well, uh, that was a very unhappy period, I've got to say, I think, for everybody concerned. Um, the decision to not renew the, the lease at the end of 1992 was not an illogical one. Uh, we had a dockyard on an island uh, in the middle of Australia's most expensive city, which was heritage listed with a terrible layout and facilities which required a lot of money just to keep them going for another quarter of a century. Uh, we'd moved half the fleet to Western Australia. Uh, ships were no longer as labour intensive in maintenance as the steamers left and we've got gas turbines and diesels. Instead of annual refits, we're going out two years, three years, five years. Uh, you, the Navy did not need as much dockyard capacity on the East Coast. So it was logical. Unfortunately, the decision was made by the government to uh, not ex extend the lease um, and preferably to close the dockyard early without the consultation which was required by the lease. Um, and uh, this resulted in all kinds of difficulties for us, particularly with our workforce who could not believe that this had happened in this way. It was very sudden. Um, the Navy, of course, got very nervous about the support of their submarines and uh, uh, it was proper that they should seek uh, other alternatives. Um, and uh, the possibility was looked at at doing refits even in Western Australia, which uh, the government was quite keen on because they were wanting to establish capability over there uh, or somewhere else so that the Cockatoo Island could be released uh, for early sale to help solve the national debt. Um, the as it happened, uh, and we know now in more detail as we have access to the papers, um, the D Department of Defence and the Minister of Defence had in fact recommended that the last two refits be completed at Cockatoo, uh, but it was the Cabinet uh, which decided that no, uh, they would put um, the last two refits elsewhere, and ADI at Garden Island was chosen to do that job. That was an enormous challenge for them. They'd not uh, they'd done some docking work on submarines, and they had taken part in the submarine refit program because they did all the radio and radar work at Cockatoo Island. Uh, but they had never refitted a submarine and to thrust two submarines on them uh, for refit uh, was a major challenge. It was also a major challenge for the operators and a major challenge for the Navy because it resulted in severe disruption uh, to the Navy's operational program for the submarines, uh, which was unfortunate after so many years um, decades, in fact, of successful operation of the Oberons in the fleet. Greg, can you talk a little bit more about the impact that the closure had on Navy? Right. Um, the first thing is that the, the cost of actually closing the uh, dockyard uh, was not really estimated. In fact, it was seen, and I believe it was seen by government, 
who had been advised by uh, some independent consultants that they could make money by um, a certain amount of uh, price per square metre for land in Sydney, centre of Sydney, hence you'll get this. But of course, you can't sell an island as a high-rise residential block when it has no sewerage. Well, it has the sewerage is very limited, the uh, electricity is very limited, it's not connected to the mainland, has no parking, all those other things. And it's a heritage site which was mentioned. Uh, are you going to bulldoze all the convict caves and the buildings that were built by convicts and the dockyard, uh, the docks themselves? No, of course not. So the, there was a, a for bad advice to government, if you like, but there were also other reasons that were leading the government which had nothing to do with defence, I think. And one of them, which was being highlighted, is the union. Now, it's, it's strange to me that you have a Labor government basically destroying various uh, hardline unions, but I think that was part of the agenda. Yes. And it wasn't just Cockatoo Island, it was Williamstown, and it was also Garden Island Dockyard. So three dockyards at the same time uh, basically, over, I'll say overhauled, um, but it was a horrible period for all those organisations. In turn, there were problems within Navy with engineering training and um, development. There was an a idea that you really only needed to be a maintainer on board a ship, which misses the whole shipbuilding enterprise idea that you really needed people like uh, Hutch, who actually was, you know, understood shipbuilding as a essential feature of the Navy, uh, of naval strategy, naval policies. So that was um, a bad period for naval engineers. It was also a bad period for the um, sailors in the uh, engineering branches, there was reorganisations. So all these together left a big hole in the Navy, Navy's engineering structures. Uh, and it's one where one group couldn't over, overcome another group. Uh, it was all widespread collapse would be my word. Um, so the cost of that to the Navy was something like $100 million or more, right? The cost to the Commonwealth could be as much as $250 million, right? Um, but the cost to the Navy was $100 million. They saved that money over five or ten years by not doing maintenance on ships, by like doing the bare minimum of maintenance on ships. So there's a major problem, and that led to defects and, and you know, a whole swag of problems, decommissioning of ships early, etc. So all these things came about due to a, to me, I think, is a lack of understanding of the fundamental parts of what a parent navy or a, or a independent parent navy should do. Mm -hmm. It's not a fleet. It's not just warships running out there. It's actually important to get the shipbuilding part right. I'm not sure if that really answers your question, but hopefully it does. certainly does. John, since the dockyards closed, um, the island has continued to be, to be used, but what's, what's it been used for? Well, it was saved from uh, 
conversion into home units and hotels and things of that nature, uh, really by intense activity by a number of enthusiasts who said, this is all wrong, this site should be saved for the nation. Uh, they were successful in that, ultimately, uh, and Cockatoo Island is now one of the ex-defence properties uh, which is uh, in the trust of the Sydney Harbour Federation Trust uh, for the nation in perpetuity. Um, it's being extremely well looked after. Uh, in 2010, the convict built buildings, uh, the Fitzroy Dock and the engineering workshop uh, were uh, added to the UNESCO's World Heritage List um, as they are unique, uh, along with 11, uh, 10 other convict sites in Australia, as they are unique evidence of a penal arrangement which not only uh, dealt with convicts and malcontents, I'm sure they were, but uh, they built a nation. They went on to build a nation uh, and, and part of that was the work that was done on those early years on Cockatoo Island. Um, the Trust are looking after the island very well. Uh, the difficulty they challenge is, uh, they're faced with of course, is making uh, money out of the site. Um, Biennale is on there at the moment uh, and uh, uh, it's available to, to, to people to visit at any time and you can rent the houses if you want to or you can go and camp there. Uh, and many people say uh, that's a lovely thing to do. Uh, well I spent 32 years there um, doing uh, many interesting, challenging, exciting, frustrating, difficult uh, but very worthwhile things uh, and feel privileged to have done so. I guess on that note, I should really ask whether or not you have any final thoughts about the, the experience that was Cockatoo Island to 1993, sorry, 1991. Uh, I think there are many things to be learnt from uh, the 134 years of operation of that dockyard. We've touched on a lot of them today. It's pleasing to me to see that today we're beginning to talk about the defence of Australia as being something which is done not just by people at the sharp end, but by Australia, by Australia's Navy and the industry and the people which support it. We're all part of the defence of Australia. There's evidence in what happened at Cockatoo uh, and indeed at the other naval dockyards in Australia uh, of how they fit into that process. Um, and uh, uh, we, we're setting out now on a path to try and recreate that capability in Australia. We're no longer an offshoot of the Royal Navy. We began to break away from that in the 1960s, uh, and in some extent now it's almost a United Nations of sources uh, for the Australian Navy. But with that brings responsibility uh, to develop our own support and our own capability, because we have ships that no one else has. Uh, they may be, have design origins elsewhere. I hope in future a good number of them will have design origins in Australia. That's the kind of capability we need to build up to because we're responsible for a very large proportion of the world's oceans uh, and our trade routes uh, pass through many of the world's contested areas. Uh, our challenge is a maritime defence that involves the Navy and involves the industry which supports it and builds its ships. Thank you. David. Just to reinforce the point that this is a, a, it's a strategic industry. It really is. Uh, and we're not just talking about shipbuilding. It is the ship repair. It is the ship sustainment. Um, it comes back to the point, as I said, that the Chief of Navy made, that it's, it's about industrial innovation. 
um, things that allow us to be the best in the world and to actually be better because you can actually go in and do things from um, not quite first principles but you can build on things and uh, far better to be able to do it yourself than to be held hostage um, to the whims of a foreign country, whether they are going to provide that to you, whether they're going to let, it, let you refit or build in their country, or even if the enemy is going to allow you to move your chips there to that, let that happen. Thank you. Look, I Greg. agree. I, I agree with the other, other guys. It's fundamentally, as, as the Chief of Navy says today, it's a shipbuilding enterprise that involves all those aspects that contribute to shipbuilding, which is design, the construction, the repair, the supplies, you know, you name it, the whole gambit. Shipbuilding enterprise is what we need to have to support our ongoing Navy and the fleet. The fleet is not the answer, the shipbuilding enterprise is the main feature. Gentlemen, thank you very much. And I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Naval History Podcast. There are plenty more to be found just by searching for Naval Studies Group in your podcast app. See you next time.